Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Bubble Trouble, conversations between The Economist and author Will Page, that's myself, and the independent analyst Richard Kramer, where we lay out some inconvenient truths about how the financial markets really work. We've made quantitative easing easy-ish to understand thanks to our past guest Michael Mahon from Oxford University. Now we need to infiltrate the institutions that do their easing, the central banks. And who better to do that with than award-winning New York Times journalist and author of the aptly titled best-selling book, Lords of Easy Money, Mr. Christopher Lenard. More in a moment. Will Page here with a special request for you, our valued Bubble Trouble listener. First off, thank you for listening. Every time we put out an episode, we are so excited to see you enjoying them. Now we'd like to ask for you to help grow the show. We'd like to ask you to tell one person about Bubble Trouble who you think would enjoy this show. Perhaps you write a tweet or send a text or an email or just post about this episode. It doesn't really matter. It just helps. Just tell one person and your work is done. Myself and Richard would be so grateful. Thank you. Christopher, welcome back to this podcast. We're very grateful to get you on. I think first things first, we need to get the introductions to yourself, your background, your work, but really important, where can our listeners find you? Well, I have a website, ChristopherLeonard.biz, which, you know, has all the books and articles I've written and my contact information. So that's probably a good place. <laughs> that's exactly what it says on the tin. And a little bit about your background, please. Yeah. So I'm a business journalist based in the United States. I've uh, worked for various outlets and published in different places. And I write books and magazine articles now. And I'd say that my central preoccupation as a writer is American power and the sort of system of power within our country, particularly looking at big corporations and government and the way those two interplay with each other. I, I did a book about the meat industry in America and how monopolistic it is and how a few companies dominate it. Then I did a book about Coke Industries, K-O-C-H, the Coke mm -hmm. Brothers Company, yep. as kind of a profile of corporate power with a real focus on income inequality and this big question as to why, you know, in America we can have economic growth for 10 years, but the gains are really captured by a tiny group of people. And, and that's why I wrote the book about the Koch brothers. But as I was sort of finishing reporting that, I got really interested in the central bank and the Federal Reserve, primarily starting with that same question of, you know, income inequality. I think the central bank actually plays a underreported role in stoking income inequality. So that's sort of my background and, and how I came to be obsessed with quantitative easing. 
Fantastic. And I noticed one of the quotes supporting your latest book was Bethany McLean, who did my very favorite documentary, uh, The Smartest Guys in the Room. It's great to see mm-hmm. her comment on your book as well. That was epic. I Bethany McLean's amazing. I mean, she broke the Enron story. And yeah, I love that book and movie too. And a small, a small footnote to that, uh, Andy Fastow is a listener to our podcast. And I'm hoping, praying, crossing my fingers and toes, we will get the great man on. Here's to hope and I'll tune in. So if I can start off with a few questions, I mean, I enjoyed reading your book. I just finished it. And I loved how it was really about anchoring on these sort of short-term incremental decisions and almost astonishingly avoiding dissent instead of embracing it in the one place you would hope to think that there was real debate. And and obviously that's led to the long-term inequality you've talked about. And equally, it was clearly a story of sort of one man swimming against the tide. But I guess as an opening question, if you were Tom, and I want to pronounce this right, Honig, uh, if you were him and, and you had to go back and change one thing that you knew 10 years later you were going to end up with this terrible income inequality by, through quantitative easing, what would, what would that one thing do? What could he have done differently that might have stopped this a decade of, of free money? What a great question. And, you know, for the listeners... What we're talking about here is this leadership committee at the United States Federal Reserve. So our central bank was built in a way, like all central banks, frankly, that kind of insulated it from voters and from democratic pressures. And the whole idea there, as you kind of alluded to, I think the whole idea is that the leadership committee of the central bank can engage in real deep debate and then make decisions that are focused on the long-term health of the economy, not just kind of short-term decision-making that's driven by the next election. I mean, that, that was the whole idea why we insulated the central bank from voters. And that's why the leaders at the Fed are not elected democratically. So you're asking me about this leader at the Fed named Thomas Honig. He was the president of a Federal Reserve regional bank, and then he had a seat on this very important policymaking committee. And as you said, he really dissented in the year 2010. And that was a pivotal, critical year, not just for the United States Federal Reserve, but for central banking around the world. 2010 is when the Fed really went on a new path. The Fed started an era of experimentation I'd say experimentation with money printing. Now, your listeners know the Fed doesn't print money. You know, that's printed at the Treasury Department. But the Fed and all central banks create new currency out of thin air. That's their superpower. So the Fed decides in 2010 that it is going to use this superpower of creating new dollars out of thin air to drive the American economy. And this guy, Tom Honig, was really the lone dissenter who voted against it and said, folks, if you do this, You're going to be trapping yourself in this policy of extraordinary money printing. You're going to benefit the richest of the rich Americans and the biggest of the big banks, and you're going to create massive asset bubbles, per the title of this show, that'll make the economic system more fragile. That's a heck of a long intro to get to your question, which is like, what would he have done differently if he could change one thing? And and I'll be honest, when you ask me that, you know, the guy had a voting seat on this committee and he voted no. He voted his conscience. He voted what he thought was the best thing to do. He lost. He voted no eight times at eight different meetings. He lost. uh, I think Mm. all of the votes were 11 against one. And I can't I I can't think of. Look, my honest answer is I don't know what he could have done differently. You know, the first part of the book is sort of the story of this doomed Mm. campaign to stop this. 
And, you know, short of being the chairman of the Federal Reserve, who would have had a lot more decision making power, I think given his position, he did everything he could do. And, and if he could have done something differently, I guess it would have been to be the chairman of the Fed instead of a voting member. Uh, so the reason I'm teeing this up is because I want to get to the, a second question or point, which is, can we talk about some of the conflicts of interest inherent in who owns and who's behind the Fed and, and who benefits from it? We had Kurt Anderson, who was the author of Evil Geniuses, yeah. on uh, as, as a guest just recently. And, you know, we were talking about as you studied the Koch brothers and we've talked and I compared his book to Jane Meyer, Dirty Money. Uh, mm -hmm. Is there a, a cultural conflict at the Fed or a conflict of interest in how how much they don't aren't really bothered by the fact that their policies might be creating in the short term, which I think in your book you brought out in the short term, they knew it would create asset bubbles and inequality. But they felt it would work out in the long run. Do you think mm -hmm. that, that those conflicts of interest are sort of inherent in the institution, that they're naturally going to be favoring uh, a very unequal outcome? I mean, yes, <laughs> that, that's exactly right. And, and if I could, maybe one way to get at that is to back up to 1913 when the Federal Reserve was formed. There was political pressure in America to create a central bank. We had tried to do it twice. We chartered a national bank and then revoked a charter. There's always been this kind of skepticism in America of that sort of centralized power. But when it really came time to charter the Federal Reserve for the final time in 1913, it was a group of bankers who got together to kind of build the architecture for the central bank. And they did it famously at a resort off the coast of Georgia called Jekyll Island. And the Fed was built in a specific way so that it would not displace the private banking system on Wall Street. That was one of the key structures. And so the Fed is built kind of, you could say, within Wall Street or behind Wall Street in the sense that when the Fed creates new dollars, it doesn't make those dollars appear in the checking account of ordinary Americans or even necessarily in the Treasury of the United States government. The Fed creates new dollars by by structure, writ, and mandate. This is how the Fed makes money. It creates it inside the reserve accounts of 24 select institutions on Wall Street called mm. primary dealers. Mm. Okay, headline, when the Fed creates money, it has to create that money inside the banking system on Wall Street, inside the reserve accounts of the primary dealers. Let's fast forward to 2010 to get at your question. When the Fed tries to drive economic growth by printing money, which is exactly what quantitative easing is, it's a jobs program. It's the Fed saying, we are going to get in there and boost economic growth by creating new money in Wall Street to push the banking system to extend new loans, buy assets. That is going to, by necessity, mechanically, by definition, it benefits the people who own assets in the United States. And 10% of the wealthiest people in the United States own 65% of all the assets. The bottom half of all wage earners in the United States own only about 5 or 7% of all assets. So by definition, the Fed, when it does these policies, and the Fed knew this, as you said, they are going to drive up asset prices and enrich the very rich. So yes, that conflict is there from the very beginning, but then there's this other layer to it, which is that the people the Fed listens to, the, the advisors who are talking to the Fed Chairman Jay Powell sometimes 10 times a day 
are people like Larry Fink, who runs the biggest hedge fund in the world, BlackRock, mm. and the people who run J.P. Morgan, the people who run Goldman Sachs. They're the people in the Fed's ear every day, and, and they're driving the agenda in a very real way. The Fed is very focused on driving up asset prices like stocks, bonds, real estate. And when the markets start to fall and the stock market starts to fall, that's when the Fed steps in to save it. So, I mean, if there's anybody who bullies around the Federal Reserve, it's not the president in the White House. It's the traders on Wall Street. Hmm. Going back to your earlier remarks about central bank independence, if we go from the early 1900s to 1997, two things happened. One, I started studying economics at university in Glasgow. And two, Labour got into power in the UK and they made the central bank independent. And I remember those lectures back then. Central bank independence was sold to you like Kool-Aid. This will solve all the problems. I want to probe two areas about the independence of central banks. One, the original sell for making a central bank independent and not democratically accountable was it would end the boom-bust political cycles of the economy. And in two, they were given targets. And in the UK, the target was a 2% inflation rate, not an exchange rate target, not an economic growth target, not a jobs target, just a 2% inflation target. Nobody has justified 2% in history. It was just, that's the number. So if that was then and this is now, I kind of wanted to ask a reflective question. What's the scorecard on central bank independence? It was the holy grail of monetary economics back then. Where do you see the argument for central bank independence today, given we've seen a lot of boom busts? And given we've seen a lot of targets being broken. God, such a great question. Um, have you read, speaking of the, the central bank in England, have you read uh, Unelected Power by Paul Tucker? No, but Paul Tucker is outspoken. He is outspoken. So I want to read that book. Amazon's just got itself a sale. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a great book. It's written, it, it, it's dense. It gets into the nitty gritty. And it's a great contemplation on this very issue you're talking about, which is there is a good rationale for making a central bank independent. And it's the kind of independent agency rationale, which is exactly what you just said. We can help escape the boom bust cycle in the sense that somebody who's independent, if you have an independent committee, they're not running for re-election in two or four years or what have you. And they can think on a long-term basis, so they can think more long-term, and they can also do things that are unpopular. That was, you know, the, the, yeah. the driving theory is sometimes the Fed has to hurt the economy in the short term to solve long-term problems. And, and you know, you pointed to the inflation target. That's that probably was, the key, key thing everybody looks at. That was Volcker in the late 70s, early 80s. So in the late 70s, early 80s, inflation was raging even in England and the United States. It was uh, rising really double digits. And the, in, in the U.S., the federal government did everything it could to stop inflation. Nothing worked. Price controls, import controls, wage control, nothing worked. The chairman of the Fed, Paul Volcker, comes in, hikes interest rates. And I guess your listeners probably know all this stuff, so I don't need to walk through it. But like if pa hmm. Paul Volcker hikes rates to 20 percent, kills inflation and kills the economy. Brutal economic downturn. Uh, employment hits 10% in the early 80s. And, and this is the kind of trade-off, Will, that you alluded to in the sense that an independent central bank can do what Paul Volcker did and say, hey, if we, we got to stop inflation because it's very destabilizing, very destructive. So we're going to hike interest rates and create a recession. And, and, and Volcker is kind of looked back upon as this almost kind of like Old Testament figure of 
you know, the guy who did the hard thing, the guy who killed the economy to stop inflation. So, gosh, again, books are written about this, but in the modern era, we have a boom bust cycle. We are back no. in the era. Y you agree, Will? Yeah, I know. This is the weird thing is that sort of stuff was supposed to be in the past. But exactly. I'm seeing just as many boom bust cycles now as before central banks were made independent. I don't get it. Well, and that was the whole reason we had the central bank is we had these periodic banking panics in the U.S. that happened every few years. It culminated in 1907, like terrible bank panic. We are back there again in an era of financial 100-year floods that happen like every eight years now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're just sort of like, what's going on? You know, one of the wonderful things that, that I pulled out of your book was just the language and the division in that Board of Governors at the Fed between those who like to speak as if, if you didn't have a PhD in economics from Yale or Princeton or Columbia, you were just, you had no, no right to even open your mouth, and the other governors who were, shall we say, somewhat more connected to the real world. And are some of these boom-bust cycles coming because we're just handing over the policy decisions to people who work in abstract theories and dense economic language, and they're divorced from the real impact of, of the decisions they're taking? Okay, I think that's a huge part of it. Obviously, I do, and I'd love to tell one anecdote along those lines, but that's a big part of it. These people are working in abstract models. And again, there's not this like satisfying silver bullet answer to this, but without question, a huge part of it, well, there's two parts. First of all, we've allowed the banking regulation to be scaled back to a level where the actual banking system now looks a heck of a lot like it looked in the early 1900s structurally with like, mm. you know, five giant banks being in so much control, really uh, tons of regulatory capture. After the Great Depression, Franklin Delano Roosevelt came in and broke up the big banks, nationalized the bad banks, and then put a, a leash on Wall Street with like the Glass-Steagall Act and creating the Securities and Exchange Commission. That's big structural reform. After 0809, we just simply recapitalized the banks and then imposed this like 2,000-page set of rules upon them called uh, Dodd-Frank that's really just irritates everybody but doesn't change anything structurally. So that's one reason we have these periodic booms and busts. And the second is, is sort of a policy decision I talk about in the book, which is that these central banks decided that they're, they're going to do exactly what Will just talked about. They're going to focus on price inflation. But they're going to not worry about asset price inflation. In other words, they're not going to worry if they pump up the stock market to stratospheric yeah. highs. This is a conscious decision they made. And, and of course, when asset bubbles pump up, they explode. And so I think that helps explain it. But, you know, Richard, your point of this whole system being driven by these sort of very high-minded PhD economists, technocrats, who frankly, overcomplicate a lot of the language around what they do to make it sound like rocket science when it's really not, it is, is pretty powerful. <laughs> there is one anecdote in the book where this guy who's a Fed official who used to be a private equity, this is what's so crazy. The, the people who come from the world of private equity and hedge funds, you know, the supposed monsters, they're the ones who talk about the reality of these policies. And this guy, 
uh, former Dallas Fed president Richard Fisher was a former investment banker, and he was inside the Fed meetings. He's like, you guys, we're just going to be pumping up the stock market and enriching the, the private equity firms and hedge funds. And Richard Fisher said, you know, I just got off the phone with the chief financial officer at Texas Instruments, and he says these 0% interest rates, he's just going to use the cash to buy, do stock buybacks. He's not going to create a single job. He's just going to do stock buybacks <laughs> and borrow money. And and Ben Bernanke, the, the Fed chairman at the time, said to Richard Fisher, he said, I, I would like to remind you, we don't like to use anecdotal information at this table from people who don't have PhDs. All right. So in other words, <laughs> no. that's in that's in the transcripts and it's in the book. And so like in other words, the guy, the chief financial officer of Texas Instruments isn't smart enough to understand the model. So we won't listen right. to him. If I can bring part one to a closure, this has been fantastic. But I think what you've identified is the problem with central bank independence is it allows economists to behave like economists. And the problem with the way that economists behave is this. When a consumer doesn't behave like their economic model, the economist blames the consumer for being wrong. <laughs> we learned about how we got into this mess in part one, back in part two in a moment to work out how we get out of this mess. Will Page here with a special request for you, our valued Bubble Trouble listener. First off, thank you for listening. Every time we put out an episode, we are so excited to see you enjoying them. Now we'd like to ask for you to help grow the show. We'd like to ask you to tell one person about Bubble Trouble who you think would enjoy this show. Perhaps you write a tweet or send a text or an email or just post about this episode. It doesn't really matter. It just helps. Just tell one person and your work is done. Myself and Richard would be so grateful. Thank you. Back with part two of Bubble Trouble with our special guest, Christopher Leonard, the author of The Lords of Easy Money. And we're infiltrating the people who do the quantitative easing, the central banks. Richard. Chris, we've had a fascinating first half talking about the culture inside these institutions. Now I'd like to ask, has the world simply become addicted to capital being free? I mean, you have people who've been in the markets now a decade, and they've never understood that you'd actually have to pay to borrow money. How do you recalibrate a world that's already reeling from so many external shocks and drowning in debt, and maybe the central bankers just realize that they've overplayed their hand, they've left, left things being too easy for too long? Yeah. So, I mean, to be glib, you don't recalibrate it easily. It doesn't happen smoothly. And so let's put it into context a little bit. The Federal Reserve in, in America is best known for controlling the short-term overnight interest rate. When you hear the Fed raises or lowers rates, it's for the short-term interest rate that the Fed can control. When you go back over the previous decades in history, that interest rate Typically, you know, it would be in the range of like three to six percent. That rate had brushed up against zero briefly in the late 60s. It hit zero kind of like maybe for a day when you look back at the chart. The Fed kept that rate at zero for seven years. Seven years, okay, between 2008, 2016, basically. And and then it raised it to the sky high level of two and a half percent. And then boom, instantly, basically back to zero now. The best way I heard it described was by Thomas Honig, who's, again, the character you mentioned in the book. And, and he put it to me this way. You hold that rate at zero for seven years. A global economic ecosystem builds itself around that seven rate. Contracts are signed. Mm -hmm. Assets are sold. Assets are bought. 
you don't rearrange that system without having, you know, some people win, some people lose. Some structures fall, others are built. And so the Fed, you know, without question, I don't think it's controversial, the world is addicted to this easy money. And not to belabor it, but here's another way I would describe it. I talk about in, in markets, risk is like a seesaw. On one end of the seesaw, you've got really safe investments like treasury bills. On the other end of the seesaw, you've got really risky investments like corporate junk debt. And there's this balance of risk. What the Fed did over 10 years was very intentionally move all the money from the safe end of the seesaw to the risky end. And the wow. Fed did that by pulling down yields on safe assets, pulling down what you could earn in a 10-year treasury, etc. Okay, fine. But now, if the Fed is going to rearrange the order and start raising rates from zero to even two and a half percent, while at the same time maybe drawing out some of the cash that's injected into the system, that money's going to go from one end of the seesaw from the risky end back to the safe end. In, in other words, you are necessarily going to see prices correct out there in the markets. To use your vernacular, like bubbles are going to pop. Mm. There's just no getting around it. And so we're in this position today where we've had a decade of not just easy money, hyper easy money, 0% interest, coupled with new money creation through quantitative easing. And there's simply no way to move back into an environment with higher interest rates without having massive volatility in the market. Mm. So yeah, we're addicted to it and it's gonna be very hard to move out of it. And that's one of the reasons people argued we shouldn't have done this kind of policy in the first place. And, and I think I'll, I'll ha throw it over to Will in a second, but if I take from that and I step back and try to understand all what we would call spec tech, speculative technology, and I include in that NFTs and cryptocurrency and all the, the stocks that have been floated on the market with $50 billion valuations but no revenue. All of that, when I think about your seesaw analogy, is just jumping on one end of the seesaw because there's no point hanging out and, and watching a zero in your bank account every year at the other end. Bingo. The music's playing, you got to dance. <laughs> We're back to Chuck Prince and uh, prior to the uh, global financial crisis saying that the music is playing and we've got to get up and dance. And that seesaw analogy really frames a lot of what we've seen just explode onto the market in the last three or four years as new asset classes. Like SPACs? I don't know if you have those. In we did a bubble trouble on SPACs. Absolutely like SPACs. But I think of it as spec tech. Anything that's, that's sort of speculative technology. Yep. When you talk about a metaverse, where is it? Who, you know, what does it involve? Well, it's completely speculative. When you talk about NFTs or, or cryptocurrency, technology has spun new asset classes that are attracting investment, attracting capital, because the other end of the seesaw looks so damn boring. And 100% agree. Here's what really bugs me is that when you read the financial press, like Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, fantastic outlets, really great. Mm -hmm. But they talk about this in the sense of, of what you're talking about. Uh, the search for yield is what, you know, you can't get any yield saving money. So you're pushing money into stocks and you're pumping up these asset prices for things like Bitcoin and Tesla stock. And what I'm saying is it's sort of it's acknowledged in the financial world that these prices are only so high mm -hmm. because of the so-called sure. Tina effect or there is no alternative. Right. And it's it's on shaky foundation. 
And again, this brings us back to this terrible position where we are today, where, where the Fed, when they start to raise rates, it'll change this whole risk equation. And we're just going to see market volatility, which is a fancy way of hedging mm. my bets. We're going to see market prices fall. Like, the tech valuations don't make any sense. I'm sorry. I'm not like an investment advisor. And, and the thing is, these, this bubble could continue to inflate for years. I don't know. But at the end of the day, these prices have mm. been driven up by the central banks. That's just beyond question. And it's clearly not just tech valuations. There's It's real estate. It's all sorts of other asset prices as well. But Will, why don't I throw it over to you for a minute? Yeah, you gave us the acronym TINA, and there is no alternative. i got to say that is so passe. That is so 2021, Chris. <laughs> My good friend Richard Kramer's got a far better one for 2022, which is called FOFO. Fear of finding out. And we'll come back to that later in the podcast. I got two questions. First one is on impotence and Viagra. Uh, if you bear with me for a second, but just I'm, I'm intrigued. <laughs> we've had ten years of inflation being above the base rate and the repo rate of interest, and the gap, even if interest rates go up, is getting wider. Inflation is going up faster than interest rates. And we are taught at university of the Phillips curve and the relationship between inflation and unemployment, how a central bank can affect that. Are central banks effectively impotent at dealing with real-world economy issues? We've talked about the financial world issues very eloquently, but in terms of how do you get inflation down, how do you get employment back up, when you have this delta between inflation being a lot more higher than interest rates today, can the central banks do anything or are they impotent? What's the Viagra solution? Well, the Viagra solution is to sort of, in, in my personal view, is to wake up and realize Central banks were not built to be jobs programs. They were not built to drive economic growth. The central bank, well, this is so interesting because we could talk about the so-called uh, dual mandate in the United States mm -hmm. of the Fed needs to maintain a certain level of unemployment low. What is What do they call that? Mm -hmm. Maximum employment. They need to keep the unemployment rate low mm -hmm. and they need to cap inflation. I personally think the dual mandate is a total mirage and, and not real, um, and I can talk about why I think that. But the central banks are created to manage currency. They create and manage the currency. We created the Fed to create the United States dollar. And then the central banks, at least in the U.S., were built to be the lender of last resort to stop bank panics. They were supposed to lend, print money and lend it to the banks in the case of a panic to short-circuit bank panics. That's so different from where we are today in the sense that, you know, when the COVID crash hit in 2020, our central bank was purchasing corporate junk debt, the loans to mid-sized businesses. We're counting on these central mm -hmm. banks to do a job they weren't built to do. They, they were not built to drive economic growth. The governments do that through this very difficult process of uh, taxing and spending, uh, finding the right balance of regulation versus allowing markets to run with room of deregulation. So my, my take on your question is that the central banks weren't built to do that job. All they can do is, is basically print money. Does that make sense? I, so it's, it's, uh, tragically, it's really up to governments to do the job. And if you're conservative, you think a government would do that by getting out of the way and having wildly deregulatory low tax policies. If you're liberal, you think they need to have a you know robust safety net regulation uh, or a Keynesian spending approach. But regardless of what your theory, it's really up to fiscal or government authorities. 
Interesting. I, I think you really summed up beautifully, which is central banks are given a job that they weren't intended to set out to do. I think that nails it for me. Now, the second question could be a whole different podcast and thinking aloud, I, I want to ask the Bitcoin blockchain question, the Satoshi's question, which is even more fascinating. But whilst this could be a whole new podcast and we need to get you to smoke signals and wrap up this one, just very quickly, do you see an element in the blockchain Bitcoin Satoshi developments where people are sticking it to the man? They're fed up with central banks and they want a different system. Or is the motivation behind this something different? Okay. God, (laughs) I'm going to have to come back for another podcast. You're in, you're in. (laughs) Money needs discipline. And and here's what I mean. We re, we had the gold standard where we tied the value of currency to a metal. And that doesn't really work that well, so we got rid of it. And we created these central banks that tried to create these committees that, you know, where wisdom of the committee would sort of substitute for the gold standard. It hasn't worked well. And the thing about Bitcoin is that it disciplines money through algorithms. Like you can't fight the algorithm of Bitcoin. There will only be so much Bitcoin and they can only be unlocked through. I'm not an expert, but like this puzzle solving process of mining Bitcoin, I understand. I think that's why people are so attracted to it. It's like a new kind of gold standard of sound money because of, of its inherent mathematical limits. Whereas we see these central banks, frankly, it's hard to argue against that these central banks are engaged in politics of, of printing money in this way to drive growth and people, certain people lose faith in the discipline over that currency. What bums me out about Bitcoin is the Tina effect, if you will, or, or the fact that so much money is rushing into Bitcoin as an investment asset that it seems unsafe to me. The price is just going way up and way back and people are jumping into it because the momentum is on its way up, which will destabilize its value. And if a bubble pops, is there a Venn diagram here where there's enough Bitcoin activity integrated into the real economy where if things go south, it brings the real economy south with it? So huge question, I have no no clue. And, And that's why when you ask, are they sticking it to the man, I don't know. And I think, unfortunately, you know, a lot of people might lose money on Bitcoin because of these, the sort of mm. asset bubble element of it. But at the same time, I think there is, yeah, it's this, it's this broader thing of some people think Bitcoin is the more disciplined, rational currency. We need to move to the end section of our podcast, which is where we do a bit of smoking. And uh, we invite our guests to do a bit of smoking with us. We ask them for a couple of the smoke signals, a couple of the things that in your time as a business journalist and certainly digging in for the past few years, looking at the Fed, what are the kind of things that you say, "Uh uh-oh, I see some smoke over the horizon, there might be a raging fire over the next hill, or some of the things that, that, that cause you to take a pause and be fearful when you hear people use language in a certain way or, or drop certain phrases or what are the kind of warning signs that you would tell your average person in the street to look out for when you look at the financial markets? So, I mean, first of all, this whole book is a giant smoke signal in my mind where I'm saying the Fed through these policies has put us in a terrible dilemma right now. And and big part of the dilemma is the Fed can't, quote, normalize without creating a market crash. But okay, all that aside, I'll tell you what I'm really obsessed with and, and I'm sorry, this is a little bit US centric, but it does matter because the dollar is the global reserve currency. And 
I am fascinated with this huge infrastructure at the heart of the dollar, which is the United States government issuing just record amounts of debt to keep the doors open. We were issuing debt to run operations back in 2019 before COVID ever hit, when when things were as good as they were going to be. We're running a trillion dollars in deficits a year. And then we've got a Federal Reserve literally buying that debt from the United States government with new dollars that the Fed creates out of thin air. It's this weird circular system of monetizing debt that is at the heart of the world's global reserve currency. So to me as a U.S. citizen, the thing that scares the heck out of me is the idea that global interest rates might start to rise outside of our control on our debt or even, yeah, on our debt, on the the 10-year treasury bond. When I see interest rates start to rise on the 10-year treasury bond, it really scares me because we are debt financing right now. And if cost goes up, it's going to change so much of the reality of the American way of life. And I keep saying, like, there's a red line somewhere where the U.S. debt becomes more expensive because people don't want it anymore because we're issuing so much debt. Now, is that red line 10 years away, 40 years away, two months away? It's like we don't know where that line is, but we seem determined <laughs> to find it in this country. <laughs> and that really worries me because we have had such an easy ride mm. on this debt for so many decades that I would say uncontrolled increase in interest rates on the 10-year Treasury worries the heck out of me. And it turns my stomach when I see those rates rising. Uh, I think the smoke signals and lures of easy money, the outcome of 10 years mm. of zero interest rate policy is one of these experiments that no PhD economist granted a degree up until 2008 would ever have been passed by his committee Mm. for proposing this solution. Mm -hmm. That let's just see what happens to the world with a decade of free money. Mm -hmm. So with that, Chris, I want to thank you. It's it's a fascinating read. It's a story of of one man swimming against the tide and, and unfortunately now being proven right. Uh, You've been a great guest. We'll have to have you back on because I think there's a lot more to talk about in this nexus of of money printing and debt issuance and and things that unfortunately fall straight in the, the remit of bubble trouble. So once again, thanks very much to Chris and my host, Will Page, for another fascinating episode of Bubble Trouble. Thank you. Great talk. Thank you. If you are new to Bubble Trouble, we hope that you will follow the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom, Jesse Baker, and Julia Nett at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Until next time, I'm Will Page. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.